topic for today is what is God? Now I frame this question rather, you know, in a, in, in a very philosophical sense of what things are and if you, if you speak about God then you might say what do you mean by God? Most people don't frame the question in this way. They like to say, who is God? And if you are a, you know, a Jewish person or a Christian, you might say, God is Yahweh. If you are, a, you know, a Muslim person, you, you might say, God is Allah. If you are a Hindu, you might say, God is, you know, Shiva or Vishnu. And some people might even say that God is not a thing or not a person. It's simply a state of being. So instead of talking about who that, you know, person or, you know, state is, we'll just talk about what is God. The simple answer in, in Vedic scriptures is God is an idea. It's a, it's a most preliminary answer and we'll develop this answer slowly and take you uh, through the different nuances of uh, uh, this description of God. But the basic I, you know, description is that God is an idea. <clears throat> but this is not an ordinary idea. Okay? Uh, this is, the idea is called Jnanam or knowledge. So, Srimad Bhagavatam, for example, says, Vadanti matvayam. This knowledge is non-dual. And I'll come back to uh, this, this question of what is non-dual in a moment. But the preliminary understanding is jnanam, which is knowledge. Now, knowledge has many words or knowledge is described by many words in Sanskrit. One of them is Vit or Veda. So Veda also means knowledge and uh, Veda itself comes from the root Vit which is which means to know. But there's a difference between the knowledge denoted by the term Jnanam and the knowledge denoted by the term Vit or Veda. And the difference is this. Vit means or to know is theoretical knowing. You can call this, you know, in, in the traditional sense of bookish knowledge or theoretical knowledge. Whereas jnanam is, uh, you know, experienced knowledge. And there is another term that's sometimes used which is called vijjnanam, uh, which means realized knowledge. So let me illustrate these differences through an example. When you, uh, for example, when you study about Newton's laws of motion, you might come across some formulas or you read the three laws of motion in a book. You memorize them and uh, you might sort of, you know, try to understand them, but to a certain extent you will. At that stage you have Vit or Veda, you have theoretical knowledge. But then you might also try to build a steam engine or a bicycle and you might use those laws in terms of calculations and things like that. You might try to solve some problems. Uh, at that point in time you have Jnanam, you know, assuming you're able to solve those problems. So by applying this knowledge to real world problems, you begin to understand, uh, you know, the Newton's laws, right? So that's the practical application and that leads to Jnanam. <clears throat> and uh, over a period of time, you might compare these laws to lots of other laws, contrast them and understand how this law is different uh, from the other laws or what are the different formulations of this law. For example, Newton's laws have, you know, at least three different formulations. 
there's a conventional sense in which Newton formulated these laws, there's a Lagrangian formulation, there's a Hamiltonian formulation and so on. As you formulate the laws in different ways, after you have done some real world applications, then you have a deep realization of what are the basic philosophical and ideological assumptions underlying these laws. And that type of realization is called Vijnanam. So, when we talk about knowledge here, uh, you know, you, you can say theoretical knowledge, practical knowledge and realized knowledge. Uh, but uh, we will just restrict ourselves to this notion of knowledge. So when we say that God is an idea, it's an idea of knowledge. And uh, everything is said to expand from this knowledge. So, for example, you know, Knowledge has many departments. You have physics, mathematics, logic, philosophy, biology, economics, etc. And these are <clears throat> the different classes or different uh, divisions of knowledge. But somebody can ask you after you study all these subjects, what do you know? And uh, how did all this knowledge come to you? So the explanation in Vedic philosophy is that the origin of all these forms of knowledge is knowledge itself. And that is called Jnanam. So when I ask the question, what is God? You're not so much interested in the name by which we call God. You know, whether it's Vishnu or Yahweh or Shiva or Allah or, you know, state of being, uh, we're more interested in understanding what do we mean by God. So, Jnanam Advayam, now let's talk briefly about what do we mean by Advayam. Dvaya means two-ness. You know, it's uh, this, this, you know, the sound of dua or duality exists in, in, in other languages like English as well. And uh, to understand what advaya, which is non-dual, uh, we should just take an example of uh, what, do, what do we mean by duality. So think of a coin. Coin has two sides. Uh, a head and a tail and uh, the head and a tail are logical opposites or at least uh, conceptual opposites and uh, in, in Vedic philosophy everything in this world comprises of duality so you have head and tail of a coin you have uh, things like love and hate you have left and right uh, you have hot and cold, bitter and sweet, black and white, and so on. And there's a particular nature to these dualities or dual ideas, which is that, number one, they are mutually contradictory. And number two, they are mutually defined by each other. So this duality is very different from the contradictions or contradictories in Western logic. Because <clears throat> when you speak about contradictories, then only one of them exists or only one of them is true. But these dualities are simultaneously existing and simultaneously true. For example, if you touch a hot object, you say, oh, it's hot. And when you're talking about hot, you're referring to that object. But it would feel hot only if your hand was relatively cold in comparison to that hot object. So what we call heat is actually a gradient in which some heat is transferred from the hot object to your hand. 
the object is hot and your hand is cold. So hot and cold exist simultaneously, which means they are in two different things. And uh, because they are in two different things, we call this world duality because it's comprised of opposites. This opposite is not a contradiction because hot and cold are in different things. They are not in the same thing. And uh, of course, they could be, you know, the same thing could be alternately hot or cold, but not at the same time. Okay. So this world is duality, which is not contradictory. Because contradiction means the same thing is hot and cold. Or it is hot and cold at the same time. So there are opposites, but they're also mutually defined. And, and this idea of mutual definition is, 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 is a little more complicated, but at this time we can just say that if I did not have the notion of cold, then I wouldn't have the notion of hot, because I only understand them through opposites. Now, in, in 20th century philosophy, there's, there's a field called semiotics. If you're interested, you can explore this. Uh, this, this idea in semiotics is, is called, uh, you know, these distinctions. So you, 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 have, you get meanings through distinctions, which is that uh, you can say square versus triangle or smooth versus obtuse or, you know, and, and so on. So uh, you kind of use these words in, in more than one sense and you, you sort of hold that distinction in your mind. So that's a very similar idea to what we mean by duality or dua. Now, because these things, uh, hot and cold, bitter and sweet, black and white, these are, in, you know, the, these are, you know, nothing is simultaneously black and white, bitter and sweet, hot and cold. So, they're separated in this world and therefore this world is duality. But when it comes to the origin of everything or God, they are combined. And this combination of opposites presents a big problem because now duality becomes a contradiction because the same thing is uh, hot and cold, bitter and sweet, so, Advaya means <clears throat> something that is non-dual. And that non-dual, to begin with, essentially comes from this idea about duality, which is that opposites are separated into different things, but in God, they are combined. Now, before I move forward with describing the nature of this uh, duality and non-duality, let's take some more examples. Let's pick the example of a coin. A coin has a head and tail, and uh, head and tail are opposites. But there is something which we call a coin which is neither head nor tail. At the same time, you can also say that a coin is actually both head and tail. So you are led to this notion of contradictions within this world where you have a coin, the coin is not neither head, it's nor tail, and yet it's both head and tail. So if you want to understand what is non-duality in terms of God, we can think in terms of what is non-duality in this world. And an example is a coin. Now, when I say that a coin is neither head nor tail, and yet it's both head and tail, 
there's a subtle distinction in how we use this words neither and both and the subtlety is that we say that a coin is not a head a coin is not a tail but a coin has a head and a coin has a tail you are familiar with computer programming or object oriented thinking you would have heard these terms which are called is a and has a a cat is a mammal and a cat has a tail there's a difference so when i say that there is a non duality which is neither head nor tail i'm using these terms in relation to the coin by you know the the conjunction is a the coin is not a head and the coin is not a tail but when i say they are both head and tail then i'm saying the coin has a head and the coin has a tail so non duality already has two meanings in this world and these two meanings can also be applied to understand non duality in relation to knowledge which would clarify to us the meaning of gyanam advayam simply rising from the notion of duality when it exists in the same thing for example a coin as head and tail uh, there is something that's neither head nor tail and it's both head and tail and these are two different meanings of uh non duality <clears throat> so the first meaning of non duality let's let's consider that which is neither head nor tail this idea is is called uh, brahman in advaita philosophy in all over vedic texts this this term is called Uh, brahman so there is a state of non duality which is called uh, brahman or brahma and it is neither of these opposites so brahman is not hot not cold not black nor white not bitter nor sweet nor love nor hate you can go on like this so these dualities are supposed to be created by material nature and brahman is something which is non material but it also means it is the negation of all these qualities now if you have to say that you know coin is not head and not tail it is very hard to understand what coin means because you could also say a horse is not head and not tail or sky is not head not tail um, you know a house is not head not tail and uh, you know potentially this not head and not tail could be applied to infinite number of things so by saying that something is devoid of all these qualities you're not saying what it is therefore brahman is an incomplete description of what it is a more complete description would be to say that a coin is something that is both head and tail so there is a non duality it's not dual in the first sense because it's neither of these two opposites and there is a non duality which is it is both these opposites but it is cannot be understood uh you know just like when it was neither of these opposites so gyanam atvayam which we can say that non dual knowledge 
has many levels. Vadanti tattattva vidastakvam yajyanam advayam Brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti satyate So this non-dual knowledge is described in three ways. The first is called Brahman, the second is called Paramatma, the third is called Bhagavan. So when we speak about God, there are these three notions about God within Vedic philosophy. And uh, most people do not know the distinction between these three things. So people might alternately refer to God sometimes as Brahman, sometimes as Paramatma and sometimes as Bhagavan. But there are actually three different notions of non-duality. They're all non-dual and they all represent knowledge. But Brahman, as we have seen, is uh, the non-duality in the sense of neither hot nor cold, neither bitter nor sweet, neither love nor hate. And the other notion of both of these opposites uh, has a further distinction in Vedic philosophy which we called uh, you know, Paramatma and Bhagavan. So let's spend a little you know, few minutes on discussing what is that distinction. That distinction essentially comes from this first word which is Jnanam or knowledge. And I said earlier that Jnanam means realized knowledge and uh, or we can treat it as the idea of knowledge. <clears throat> now when we talk about ideas, all ideas have, uh, you know, a transcendental existence. And when I mean transcendental in a very philosophical sense, not necessarily in a spiritual sense here. This transcendental sense of ideas comes or existed even in Greek philosophy in what is now called Platonism, uh, where Plato said that there is this world of things, uh, tables, chairs, houses, trees, you know, so on. And uh, there is a transcendental world of ideas. In this world of ideas, there are there is an idea of a tree, there is an idea of, uh, you know, a house, you know, people, cars, and so on. But there is a lot of pure ideas. Whereas this world is a reflection of that world of pure ideas. And in this world, there is there are two things. One is a substance and an idea. So sometimes in Greek philosophy, this distinction is made between a substance and a form. And uh, so this world is a combination of substance and form, but the other transcendental world is pure form or ideas. <clears throat> so when I say transcendental, uh, you know, when, when I say that knowledge is an idea, that essentially means there is a transcendental idea of knowledge. And uh, that knowledge exists in this world as individual pieces or individual types of knowledge, like, for example, biology, logic, mathematics, uh, economics. These are all forms of knowledge. But there's a difference between the Greek notion of how these ideas advent into this world and the Vedic notion of you know, how these ideas advent into this world. And here's the difference. The difference is that uh, in, in, in Greek philosophy, the advent of ideas into this world uh, arises due to substances. So, for example, you know, you have the idea of a chair and then there is some substance called wood. And the idea of a chair or the form of a chair combines with wood and you get a wooden chair. So this 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 notion of uh, you know forms kind of comes to Greek philosophy you know because they had uh, these idols of you know Greek gods and and they used to frame their images into stone and uh, 
there was a lot of debate about whether God is in the stone or God is actually transcendental. And, uh, you know, the, the initial Greek idea was that these ideas advent into this world and we give them, uh, you know, because we cannot understand the ideas directly, we, we, get, we put them in a stone or cast them in a stone form. And uh, that's when the idea has advented into this world. So, in Vedic philosophy, we, we, we do not uh, say that this world is substance. We rather say that there is individual modalities, right? So, uh, uh, the idea is, is a universal and it, it, it combines with another modality which is called individuality. So, the idea becomes an individual. In, in very simple terms, I could say that uh, there is an idea of a chair and there is an instance of that chair. And that instance is this individuality. Now, once you get uh, an individual chair, you have two notions of chair. The first one is the transcendental idea of a chair. But alongside that transcendental idea of chair, you also have an individual chair. The problem is, how do I know this individual thing is also similar to that transcendental idea? And this problem arises because the idea is one, but the instances of that idea are many. For example, you have one idea of a chair, and there are millions of chairs. So, when Greek said that the idea advents or combines with substance, there was a lack of clarity on how one idea actually becomes many instances of uh, that idea. For example, how does one idea of chair combine with many, you know, wood, pieces of wood uh, and, and, you know, how does it become many chairs? Because whenever that combination occurs, it's inherently assumed that uh, there must have been many copies of that idea of chair which then combined with many instances of wood and uh, those many copies of ideas and these many pieces of wood combined to create many chairs. Now, that would create the problem that those individual copies had to be created somehow or the other. So it won't be enough to just say there is one idea of chair. We would rather have to say there is one idea, but it has literally infinite copies. So by saying that we accept a modality of, you know, or the idea of individuals, we are not adding anything that is unnecessary to this uh, older or, you know, uh, in, in, at least in, in terms of Greek philosophy, uh, the, the, you know, the, the idea of universals. So, but when you have a chair, then at that point you ask, how do I know it is a chair? And, and of course the Greek answer is that there is a copy of this idea of chair which is inside that chair. And this is where Vedic philosophy differs. It, it says that the idea of chair is still transcendent, but the chair inside the individual chair is a reflection of that idea. And these two, you know, the, the original idea is, is called Bhagavan, and the reflection of that idea in each individual thing is called Paramatma. So therefore, uh, in Vedic philosophy we will say Bhagavan is one, but Paramatma is present in everything. In a different language we can say Bhagavan is transcendent, 
and uh, Paramatma is immanent. The term immanence uh, also, you know, is a, is a, is a re relatively, you know, it's, it's a Greek term. And, uh, you know, from this immanence comes this, uh, and in the use of forms comes this word called inform, uh, from which comes modern word information. So there's, we say that, uh, you know, something is inside, it is informing, uh, and it's imminent. So this imminence is Paramatma and the transcendence is Bhagavan. But remember, we already said that uh, this is non-duality of knowledge or it's non-dual knowledge. Uh, but it has a head and a tail. It is, you know, it has bitter and sweet and so on. <clears throat> so the second type of non-duality is, uh, is actually has two forms, uh, a transcendent form and an imminent form. A good way to understand this is, is to say that when you see a chair, uh, you see something that's inside the chair, uh, which makes you identify it as a chair. But if you did not see the chair, there is still the idea of chair. In a sense, if all the chairs in this world were destroyed, the idea of chair would still exist. If, if this you know, world was completely destroyed, still the ideas would exist. And uh, the existence of, that, of those ideas was recognized even in Platonic philosophy because the transcendental world of ideas uh, exists when this world doesn't exist. And uh, when the world exists, there is uh, all these ideas have advented in, inside individual things. Now, once we say that, you know, jnana madhvayam, non-dual knowledge has advented into everything uh, in, in an imminent form, we are essentially saying that everything in this world has the property of being knowable. There is nothing unknowable. So that's the meaning of immanence. Just like if you see a chair, you say it has the property of chairness. Chairness is imminent or, uh, you know, informed into the chair. Similarly, when we say knowledge is imminent in everything, what we are saying that each of these things have sprung up or they're informed or, you know, they're, they're imminent forms of knowledge. In very simple terms, everything is knowable. And all these things have been produced from this idea of knowledge or knowability. So there are different divisions of knowability, which is, you know, very big topic in Vedic philosophy. What are the different ways in which we know? Uh, for example, sense perception like seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, uh, hearing, these are sense perception ways of knowing. Then there is a way of knowing by the mind. Uh, there is a way of knowing whether something is true or not, whether something is good or not, whether something is right or not, uh, etc. So there are many divisions of uh, knowability. But all these divisions have simply expanded from this idea of knowability. And this knowability is imminent in everything, which is why the world is knowable. So I can know uh, this world through sense perception, through, th through thought, through uh, various kinds of judgments, analysis, observation, and so on. But the root of all these things is that it's knowable. Now you might think that why are we talking about knowability? Of course, you know, everything is knowable. But remember that this is not such a straightforward idea. At least in Western philosophy, it's not obvious to everybody that uh, the world is actually knowable. In fact, there have been extensive arguments uh, from empiricists like David Hume, George Berkeley, and so on, to say that uh, 
the world is actually not truly knowable because when I see I'm just getting taste, touch, sound, smell and sight, I really don't know what it is behind the perceptions. And this idea also existed in, in, you know, in, in Greek philosophy where Socrates, for example, said that uh, what you are seeing is essentially images projected or shadows projected on the, on the walls of a cave. Uh, and these shadows are being cast by some people who are, you know, dancing in front of a fire. So uh, when they dance, you know, the, the, the fire casts a shadow on the wall. Uh, walls of a cave and you just see the shadows but you don't know what's behind it it could be that you know there's a shadow graphist who's uh, mo merely moving his hands and fingers and that movement is casting the shadows so by looking at the shadows you have no way of knowing what reality is and if all my experience is simply these perceptions i really have no way of knowing the world and therefore, a big distinction between appearance and reality uh, has been drawn. And the, all epistemology or the method of knowing essentially is a, a development or you know, questions about how can we know. And uh, behind all these questions is the doubt, can we even know? So when we say that the world can be known because it's built from knowability. We are saying two very important things. The first important thing is you can know reality. So our conception of reality is essentially built from the idea of knowability, which means anything that exists has been produced from knowability, therefore it is knowable. The second important thing is that it's knowable to us because knowability is defined in terms of the capacities or the capabilities of experience and consciousness and uh, you know for example I said sense perception, uh, thought, judgment, you know uh, claims about truth and right and good. And therefore, you can know it because we have the same capacities, right? So, so this will come down to a you know, point that I'll make later, which is that uh, our capacities of knowing are very similar to God's capacities of knowing, which means I can know this world because it's built from knowability and that knowability is accessible to me. So all these fundamental problems of epistemology of uh, can I know the world, right? It, it's very possible, for example, empiricists have been saying that well, you cannot know the world uh, because all you get is shadows and you don't know what's behind the shadow. Uh, or maybe somebody can say that maybe I'm not even seeing all the shadows. Maybe there are some shadows which are cast in a way that they're not even visible to me. So that would mean the world is not knowable and uh, therefore I cannot know reality then uh, you know how can I know I, maybe I don't know all these things and this argument is often extended to God uh, by, by saying that hey maybe God is there but I cannot see him uh, maybe God is not knowable at least I you know maybe he's not even perceivable. And, and if, if God is not perceivable, then uh, all these things that people, different things that people say about God are either imaginary or uh, in principle unknowable. Right? So all these things about <clears throat> uh, God, whether he is knowable and, and so on, are addressed when this question of, uh, or when the nature of God is described as knowledge. Because from knowledge expands diversities of knowledge or many instances of knowledge. And all of them have this imminent form of knowledge, which we can call knowability, which makes all these things knowable to us. But it also means that if I understood what that knowability itself is, then I'll understand what knowledge is. And if I understand what knowledge is, then I will know what God is. Therefore, 
in an imminent form, God is in me, in you, in a table, in a chair, in a you know, car, in a house, in all the atoms of this world. So Brahma Samhita, for example, says, Andantarastha Paramanu Chayantarastham. Antarastha. Stha means situated. Antar means inside. Situated inside, informed, immanent. Paramanu. Paramanu is, uh, in, sometime we probably discuss what a Paramanu is, but for now it's atom. And uh, these atoms are the smallest units of knowability. They are expanded from knowability. So the smallest idea that you can conceive of, the smallest perception you can have, that is an atom. It's an atom of knowability. It's an expansion from knowability. It's a division of knowability. It's a unit of knowability. Or you can say it's an instance of knowability. And knowability is inside that. So that's what's the meaning of andantarastha paramanu. So anda means the universe and so the God is inside the universe. And, uh, you know, God is inside uh, <coughs> uh, the each of the atoms. So these two forms, which are called non-dual jnanam, uh, they are like the coin which has a head and a tail. The coin is different from head and tail. The coin has head and tail. The coin is neither head nor tail. So all these contradictions, uh, you know, they might seem very contradictory in a, in a, in a classical sense if we take, uh, you know, like opposites. But if you think of you know, for example, a coin, then you can extend this idea and say that a coin is not head, not tail. Coin has head and tail. And uh, knowability similarly has, you know, one form of knowability is hot, another form is cold, one form is bitter, one form is sweet. So all these things, because they're expanded from knowability, but knowability is not any of these things, and yet it has all these things. They are, you know, that's why knowability is non-dual. So now we can go back to the question of jnanam, advayam. We have accepted that or we have said that you know it's it's non-dual knowledge and uh, so this is the Vedic description of what we mean by God and of course the term God is uh, you know that that term is never used for example in this verse which says vadanti vidastattvam so tat means that and tattvam means the essence uh, or what is that? So the knowers of the essence of that say that that is non-dual knowledge. And this non-dual knowledge can then be understood in three forms, which is Brahman, Paramatma and uh, Bhagavan. And Brahman is neither of these opposites and Bhagavan and Paramatma are transcendental and immanent forms of this non-dual knowledge. So, from here, or the basic idea or the understanding of what this essential truth is, uh, or the conclusion of, uh, uh, you know, knowledge is, or uh, what we mean by God, you know, stem many different religious systems. The Advaita system, uh, says that again in the term Advaita you get uh, you know non-dual and that Advaita or the Advaya term appears also in this Jnanam Advayam right 
So people assume that Advaita means something that is devoid of all these qualities, which means it's not hot nor cold, nor bitter, not sweet. Uh, but that's not the only kind of Advaita. There are three kinds of Advaita. Because Dvaita means duality and non-duality. Advaita uh, you know, is non-duality, but there are three forms of non-duality. One form is not hot, nor cold, nor bitter, not sweet. But the other two forms are both hot and cold, both bitter and sweet. And yet, it is they are not hot and sweet, they are not bitter and sweet. They have bitter and sweet, they have hot and cold. So it's the has a modality or the has a way of speaking rather than is a way of speaking. So when we talk about Brahman, we can say that the soul or I am not this body. I am not male and female or female. I am not Indian or American or European. I am not black or white or brown. I am not tall or short. I am not young or old. When you deny all these things, that's when you get Brahman. But it's a negative conception of the self. I am not. It's like saying the coin is not head, not tail. That's one form of non-duality. The other form is, what am I? And at least to begin understanding the self, we must understand uh, the supreme self or the super self. Um, and uh, uh, that understanding is also non-dual. Now we must remember that <clears throat> because duality is constructed out of opposites and uh, when we say, and you know, in, in Western logic, we say that something could be either hot or cold, either bitter or sweet. And there are two logical principles. The first logical principle says, uh, is called the principle of mutual exclusion. And the second logical principle is the principle of non-contradiction. So non-contradiction essentially means that something cannot be both hot and cold cold simultaneously, right? Because that would be self-contradiction and uh, we, we cannot allow self-contradiction. The second principle of mutual exclusion says that it must be either hot or cold, it cannot be anything else, right? So uh, you can't say that there is something called warm if your distinction is you know, hot and cold, and it must be either classified as hot or cold. It cannot be anything in middle. It cannot be something other than hot and cold. So these two logical principles are framed by saying that it cannot be neither hot nor cold, and it cannot be both hot and cold. So duality essentially means logic. This world is dual, it means to say that it is logical. Because things in this world are not simultaneously hot and cold, and they are either hot or cold. So, you know, but non-duality is the notion that there is something that is neither hot nor cold. So you are breaking the principle of mutual exclusion. It is illogical. Similarly, when you say that something has both heart and cold or head and tail, at that point, you know, you are breaking the principle of non-contradiction. So, non-duality, in a sense, becomes the violation of logic. Where you say that logic applies to this world and... Uh, Logic doesn't apply to this transcendental reality. But this notion that logic doesn't apply to transcendental reality, which can be Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan, and so on, uh, is a very physical notion of 
the world. As you know, we discussed previously, when you when you speak about a coin, the coin is neither head nor tail. The coin has both head and tail. So this principle of non-contradiction and mutual exclusion is being violated even in this world. Whenever you talk about a coin, you know it's different from head and tail and it's it has both head and tail. So these principles are being violated here. And if we can understand how these principles are you know, applied to this world, then we can also apply them in the case of knowledge or knowability. So many philosophers, you know, in both West and East and, you know, especially in Indian philosophy, a lot of people say that, you know, we cannot know the absolute truth, we cannot know God, we cannot know Brahman, it's unknowable, undescribable, and so on. And that is partly true in the conventional sense of physical logic, where something, you know, your, your, your hand is cold and maybe a hot plate that you're touching is hot, and these are two different things and something cannot be both hot and cold. So how, how do I understand this, uh, <clears throat> this uh, you know, contradiction? But when you start thinking in terms of ideas, then the idea of a chair is transcendent. Uh, the idea of chair is imminent. Because if the idea of chair was not imminent, then you could not know anything as a chair. And because this idea of chair is imminent, then you say the chair has a leg, has a seat, has a backrest, has a handrest. So all these other things which might be front and back, left and right, up and down, these are, they, you use the term has a. So the chair has a back, has a seat, has legs. But the chair is not the backrest, it's not the handrest, it is not the legs. Right, so this the these this this I this I mean, the very notion of an idea by which we understand the world is also self-contradictory, or at least it violates these classical principles of logic, which is mutual exclusion and non-contradiction. So. Many things uh, are, are are have to be understood. In this, in this process of saying that uh, the world has emerged from knowledge and therefore it is knowable. The, the first thing is that I can know the world uh, because it's knowable. This knowability conforms to my uh, modes of knowledge. But this knowledge or knowability is also breaking my principles of logic. And uh, in that sense, my conventional sense of what the, the ways I've defined this knowability through logic or modern science is not achievable because it breaks the principles of logic. Now this is probably going to disturb some of you because it immediately brings up this picture of conflict between science and religion. Science is working on logic which is mutual exclusion, non-contradiction and we are saying that knowability or you know God for example in this case is uh, violating all these principles of uh, logic therefore God is illogical and there, because God is illogical, therefore is contradictory to science. But that's not the argument I'm going to make because I'm going to say that even if you see a chair or you have a coin, you are already using language in ways that are illogical. And yet, there are some nuances in uh, 
in 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 you know in in ordinary language which do not or partly exist in in science but not very clearly in in logic and these nuances are is a has a uh, types of uh, things uh, the the real problem is that you have an opposite like head and tail and you say that something is neither head nor tail that's like saying there's a cube which has a left and right but the cube is not left or right so that or or a chair which has a you know backrest a seat and legs but the chair is actually not the back seat not the legs not the handrest not uh, the legs so the natural question is what is this chair where does it exist it's not because it's not the handrest so it's it's not uh, Uh, you know in the hands because it's not the back rest therefore it's not in the you know back rest it's not the seat it's not the leg so it's not in any part of the chair so there is a chair but it's not in any part of the chair then where is it and the answer is that <clears throat> reality has many levels and the transcendent aspect is a higher level and the immanent aspect is the same you know it exists at the same level so in some sense you can say that chairness is in all parts of the chair because if they were not parts of the chair then you wouldn't say this is a uh, you know this is a leg of the chair you would as it's a plank of wood and everything would become a plank of wood or a piece of wood uh, if there wasn't a chair but if there is a chair then you can say this is a seat this is a backrest this is a leg this is a handrest and so on so the mere aggregation of these pieces into form of a chair actually changes all the parts and that's why you say that uh, you know there is a descriptive difference you you describe the world in uh, you know in different words if they are part of a chair versus if they are not so in that sense chairness is imminent in all the parts and yet the chair is not any of these parts so even this world or, or at least you can say the way we describe the world through ordinary language through ordinary concepts is illogical the problem is not a contradiction between uh, uh, a religious language and a scientific language the contradiction is between ordinary language and the scientific language because in ordinary language you are able to speak about the coin which is you know both head and tail and neither head and tail uh, which has uh, you know all these parts of the chair but the chair is not any of these parts and these things exist in ordinary language but they do not exist uh, at least not very overtly uh, in in modern science and this creates the sense or the problem of um uh, uh, the, the contradiction between uh, religious language and a scientific language which essentially is a problem of logic uh, because we are trying to break the principles of logic by saying this world is duality but god is non-dual now once the problem is posed as uh, the contradiction between ordinary language and uh, scientific language then we can liberate this discussion uh, or we can change the uh, at least uh, context of this discussion from a debate between science and religion and move the conversation to how do i Uh, perceive the world in terms of ordinary concepts which is completely different from uh, how do i speak of this world in a scientific language and the essence of this problem is that science doesn't speak of the world at all in terms of concepts for example there is nothing called hot and cold there is only temperature it is uh not big and small it has some length in 
terms of meters or feet. It is not long and short. Uh, it is not near and far. It is not, uh, you know, uh, close by or, you know, immediate or further. And because everything is reduced to the measurement of a single standard. And, you know, space itself, uh, because of these measuring standards, space itself gets defined in a completely new way. And here's, uh, here's, uh, here's an illustration of that. Uh, when you speak in terms of opposites like hot and cold, there are two extremes to this space, if you call this so-called space. You know, the left side may be hot and the right side may be cold. And uh, these are the extremes of the space. But if you speak in terms of length or a scale, that space has no limit. Right? You, you can go on repeating meter after meter after meter. It's infinite to the left, infinite to the right. So there is, whenever we start speaking in terms of concepts, our space is closed because there are two extremes of this space. One extreme is hot, other is cold, one is sweet, the bitter. And you know, all these opposites essentially bound your language the you know they they bound the uh, description in terms of these extremes but when you have physical measuring instruments then space is unbounded now this conflict between ordinary language and scientific language begins uh, with these different ideas about space one which has extremes and bounds, the other one which is unbounded or open. And because science employs all its properties in terms of these measuring instruments, which are unbounded dimensions, uh, whereas in ordinary language we have, you know, everything that's bound by concepts, therefore a fundamental, you know, contradiction is created between these two languages. I'll probably use a future episode, uh, you know, podcast and you know, talk about uh, uh, how these differences between ordinary language and scientific language arise, uh, languages arises. Uh, but for now, uh, we can stop the conversation and just recapitulate about what we have discussed. We started with the question of what is God? And we said that Everybody, every religion has a different no name for God. It may be Yahweh, it may be Allah, it may be Vishnu, Shiva. And some people even say there's a state. Now we accepted that there is a state of godliness, which is called Brahman, which is devoid of all these dualities. And because it's neither of these dualities, therefore it's a transcendental state. And we also said that this godliness is kind of a little different from uh, uh, another non-dual state which is both of these two opposites. And uh, there are two forms of this one which is transcendent and the other one which is immanent. And uh, therefore we have three definitions of this transcendent reality uh, which is also immanent in this world. And this immanence in, in, in this world makes the world knowable uh, and yet this knowability is logically contradictory. And then we said that this logical contradiction is not a contradiction between religion and science. It's actually a contradiction between scientific language and ordinary language. So lots of different notions about uh, you know, God or most people who might not know these distinctions might be informative or instructive about how God is, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the beginning of understanding of God is to say that God is an idea. That is the idea of knowledge. From this knowledge expands lots of forms of knowledge and knowledge is embedded 
inside all these forms because all these things are knowable. So this is a radical, uh, very different notion about uh, what God is. It's 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 devoid of you know, and and it's not devoid actually, but we can get into uh, what these you know why these different names are used uh, in in the in the in the you know in related to God and and uh, but instead of getting into those debates about my God is Allah and your God is Yahweh and my God is Vishnu and your God is Shiva and then God is neither of these things but simply a state of existence etc. When we, when we go back to the question of rather than asking who is God, we ask what is God. If we, if we ask that question, then the other questions begin to seem a little less important, uh, not completely irrelevant, but at least for the beginner, uh, it frames the conversation into a better context. So that's all I will say for today and uh, uh, meet you again next episode.